0: Welcome to the Gouhei. In this episode, I'm talking with Mark Dietz, a 1990 graduate hailing from the Thirsty Third Company. Mark is my first 90 guest. At the Naval Academy, Mark was a history major. A two-time Kansas State High School wrestling champion, Mark was recruited to wrestle at Navy and lettered second and first class year. When service selection night rolled around, Mark selected Marine Corps Aviation. If you were to meet him, you may get the impression he was destined to be a devil dog from birth. In the fleet, Mark flew the UH UH-1N Huey helicopter in the Fleet Marine Force. His call sign was Stay Puffed, you know, the giant marshmallow man in the Ghostbusters movie, because he had the largest head in the squadron. Mark deployed to Somalia and the Persian Gulf before being hand-selected to pilot Marine One for former presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. Following a distinguished tour at HMX-1, Mark earned his master's degree in National Security Affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School, or NPS. Degree in hand, Mark made a fateful decision in his career. His work at NPS reignited his passion for helping people and understanding history, and how history shapes current events. Knowing it would extinguish his rising star and chances for command, Mark traded in his warfighting sword for diplomatic service as a foreign area officer. In preparation, he learned French in six intensive months and deployed to sub-Saharan Africa as a U.S. defense and marine attaché for five West African nations. Mark is a good dude. We've gotten to know each other over the years, but I wanted to know him better. So I asked a mutual friend who flew with him, been through a few things with him, and counts him as one of his closest friends. Here's what he told me. Mark is a devout Christian who prefers seeing the good in people rather than disparaging them. He's motivated by making a difference and sharing his good fortune with the less fortunate. He's competitive, but only for the betterment of himself, not the destruction of his opponent. It's impossible to be a more loyal friend, colleague, husband, father, or person than Mark Dietz. Here, here. Before retiring from the Marine Corps, Mark completed the circle by returning to Navy as a history instructor. His experience teaching midshipmen lit the flame for his life's pursuit. He's joining us today to tell us why and how he transitioned from flying combat helicopters to his dream job as an assistant professor at the American University in Cairo, Egypt. Let's get started. Mark Dietz, welcome to the Goo hey. Mark, I'm really excited to have you because you have such a great story. You got to connect the dots for me as well as our listeners. Listen, I knew you back at Navy. We go way back. You got to explain to me how in the world does a Hilo Bubba who served on the Presidential Helicopter Squadron, go from that to a professor in Cairo, Egypt?
1: (laughs) Well, it is kind of a long story. I think that the shortest answer is probably the FAO program, the Foreign Area Officer program. I did my five and a half years in the fleet at Camp Pendleton, and then after amphibious warfare school, went to flying Marine One with HMX-1 there at Quantico. At that point, I kind of came to a decision point in wanting to apply for this FAO program. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll put it in a package and see what happens. I got selected for Sub-Saharan Africa. After my time with Marine One, went to the Naval Postgraduate School, learned how to speak French, and then went to Dakar, Senegal as the defense attaché there. That was kind of the beginning of my African experience. served as the defense attaché to five different uh, West African countries. I got the opportunity for my twilight tour, moving up into 20 years, to go back to the Naval Academy and teach history. That was another kind of life-changing experience because that led to me deciding that I enjoyed academia and I enjoyed teaching. I ended up going to Cornell to get a PhD in African history and then ended up at the American University in Cairo.
0: Why African history? Why did you feel an affinity towards African history? I don't know that I
1: felt an affinity necessarily. I grew up in a small town in Kansas. Joining the military was kind of an opportunity for me to see the world. I had always wanted to live overseas with my family if I could. That's why I applied for the FAO program. I knew very little about Africa or African history when I was selected for that. The learning curve was steep. But once I got to the Naval Postgraduate School and I started reading about the history and politics and culture of Africa, I was hooked. I was fascinated and I wanted to go see it.
0: Let's talk about that last tour, your twilight tour at the Naval Academy. (laughs) Again, I go back to knowing you at the Naval Academy and still remembering what it's like to be a midshipman. How surreal was it for you to be on the other side of the desk as an instructor?
1: It was surreal. It was like a dream come true in some ways. I dreamed of being a history instructor at the Naval Academy someday.
0: Really? I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. So I got that opportunity. I was very grateful. It was a pleasure to go back and become the colleague of some of my former professors. I took Soviet history from Jane Good. I took the history of the U.S. Civil War from Mary DeCretico. I took U.S. Revolutionary History with Jack Houston, Modern Germany with Larry Thompson, and the History of the Vietnam War with Bill Roberts. And I was going back and becoming their colleague. That was cool.
0: (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I, (laughs) I don't know. I probably would just have a stunned reaction if that were me. And I went back at the Naval Academy next to uh, my professors. (laughs) First, how did you graduate? Secondly, (laughs) how did you become an instructor here?
1: (laughs) I don't think I did that much better than you, though. (laughs) They probably thought it. Maybe they didn't say it.
0: Tell me about your experience teaching the midshipmen. That was just a privilege.
1: I had such empathy for these midshipmen, having sat on the other side of the desk. I kind of had a sense of where they were in their, in their intellectual journeys and where they were headed in terms of their professional journeys. I was really fortunate there. As a FAO, I was one of the few rotational military instructors who got to teach a non-Core course. I taught this course called the United States and Africa. And the idea was to give midshipmen a sense of the history between these two continents. And between the United States and and all of these different African countries. The course began with the history of the Atlantic slave trade and went up through the war on terror. The course focused on critical analysis of US actions in Africa, especially in the Cold War. We were often not necessarily the good guys during the Cold War. I wasn't necessarily trying to paint the US government in a positive or negative light, but I just wanted to turn on the lights for midshipmen about the history of the U.S. on the African continent so that they could be aware of some of the perceptions that they might expect if they ever deployed to the continent themselves. The other thing about that tour that was so important to my career was the midshipmen. Having the privilege of watching the light bulb go on for a midshipman who knew nothing about Africa just like me in many ways, when I was in their shoes, getting to see their passion for learning about the continent and understanding African history, culture, and politics. Their passion inspired me then to pursue a PhD and a post-military career in higher
0: education. Wow. If I were a midshipman at the Naval Academy and you were there, I would have signed up for that course. It sounds like feels very interesting and challenging. Can't imagine something like that being taught back when we were at Navy. I'm glad that you got a chance to do it and I'm glad that it's still going on. Mark, tell me what's the path to higher education including timing as it relates to USNA alumni who should consider it. I mean, is this something primarily for transitioning officers? Is it for the young transitioning officer who five and dived or is it for An old guy like me, (laughs) who's been out for more than 10 or 15 years, who can make this pivot to higher education like you did?
1: I would not tell anybody not to do it because I'm a believer in lifelong education. And if you have the passion to do something like that, then to go for it. But I do think that it requires a certain amount of passion and dedication because getting my PhD took seven years. I retired from the Marine Corps at the age of 42, and then went to Cornell. So you can see I'm almost 50 by the time that I'm applying for entry-level positions as an assistant professor. I'm not going to discourage anybody, but I think you have to be aware of the sacrifices that you're making, especially like in your prime earning years. If you do it earlier, I think if you do five and dive, I think that's great timing to do it. Here's the gouge universities will pay you to get a PhD. No way. Yeah, I did not know that until I heard that from a spouse of the military cooperation guy in Senegal, because she'd been working on her PhD before. Yeah, I discovered that, especially at a lot of the top universities that have some endowment money, you're not going to be rich, but they'll actually pay you to get a PhD. If there's anybody out there who is interested in doing that, do not pay for it yourself.
0: Now, Mark, that's exquisite gouge. So that falls under the category of the guhe.
1: That's the guhe, brother.
0: <laughs> I didn't know that you could get paid for going to school. You say you're not going to get rich by it, but just give us a sense of how much we're talking about.
1: The figures that I have are mostly for. Humanities and social sciences kinds of disciplines, but I would say that most assistant professors are going to start somewhere around fifty to seventy thousand dollars a year. Associate professors, which is the next rank up, eighty to one hundred thousand, and then full professors are probably somewhere from one hundred twenty to one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. As a guy who retired from the Marine Corps, I'm adding my pension to that. Again, I'm not going to be rich, but it's enough to live on. And plus, there are other benefits, too, like health care and education benefits for your dependents, travel, research funding, and all that kind of thing. I have a pretty good deal at the American University in Cairo, where the university will pay a certain percentage for all of my kids to go to school there. That doesn't mean that they all necessarily want to go to college in Cairo.
0: <laughs> right, right.
1: But at least they've got that opportunity.
0: But they have the opportunity, right.
1: That's right. That's right. So if they're going to turn it down, that's up to them.
0: Now, you're an assistant professor, right? That's right. Yeah. Give us a dilo of an assistant professor, a day in the life of an assistant professor. What's your day like? Maybe what's your week like? Give us some sense of what we would do if we were in your shoes.
1: In my shoes, there's a weekly rhythm, I would say, that's the most important. As an academic, and I think this is going to be true regardless of the discipline that you might go in, it depends somewhat on the institution. But in general, academics are expected to do research and publish. They are expected to teach, of course. And third, they are expected to perform service. Service for the department, service for the university, service for the profession.
0: Collateral duties is what you're talking about. You have a lot of collateral duties.
1: Right. Well, that's the service kind of stuff, serving on various committees and some other extra things that are optional. For example, I'm the Francophone book review editor for the Journal of West African History. I did not necessarily have to sign up for that, but I saw it as a wonderful opportunity to work with a wonderful group of professionals in the editorial board that I work with led by our editor-in-chief, Nwando Achebe, from Michigan State University. It's a great experience and very valuable for me moving forward, just getting to see the kinds of debates that take place on editorial boards in terms of uh, publishing various kinds of work. If you're teaching at a university, the thing that takes up most of your time is teaching. You want to do well at that. Most departments and most provosts pay a lot of attention to the student evaluations. You want to aim for excellence in that. But the other thing is, you've got to do the research and the writing. That's the thing that's really going to get you promoted. I've often compared it to flying helicopters in the Marine Corps. There was only one block on the Marine Corps fit rep that had anything to do with your flying. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) everything, Everything else was related to your ground job. It's kind of like that, you know, in this split between research and writing and teaching.
0: I want to go back to the guhe you share with us. Why would a university pay you to get your doctorate? What do they get out of it?
1: That's a good question. The main thing is teaching. They get TAs for it. They are using that grad student labor for grading papers, for teaching discussion sections. When I was at Cornell working as a TA there, I worked for some very senior, very accomplished professors. They could focus on lecturing and focus on their teaching while I, as the TA, took care of running the discussion sections and then grading the papers.
0: And that makes sense. I don't think that is widely known that you can get a doctorate. <laughs> yeah. It got me busting my brain and thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I have. The appetite at this point in my life to uh, to go back to school. I think uh, Navy and Pepperdine were enough for me.
1: I still had the juice at the age of forty two. I don't know that I do now, <laughs> at the age of fifty three. But I think for younger Naval Academy graduates, people who are coming out of the service at an earlier point in their careers, and they've got that passion and they've got that drive, then they should go for it. I will say that passion and that drive is very important. I saw a lot of really, really bright young men and women in the graduate program at Cornell who either they didn't make it or they just decided, you know what, this isn't for me. I'm heading in a different direction. I had an advisor at Cornell, Judy Byfield and and Sonda Green, who I think they actually like the military veterans because they know that you're coming with a level of professionalism and a level of dedication that you're not going to be shaken off by a few tough things in the program. I had a few moments in my program where I refer to it as my come to Jesus meeting, <laughs> where I had to meet with Judy and Sandra and my dissertation committee to talk about what I was doing. But that wasn't going to deter me. I think that there were some other grad students that would have said, okay, you know what, that was tough. Maybe this isn't for me. But I didn't take it that way at all. I took it as an honest debrief at the end of a flight and some things that I needed to improve uh, moving forward.
0: So you're saying not quite an act board, but but much more of an EI.
1: (laughs) We were all sitting down.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What's next? You planning to stay in Egypt for some time or are you looking at your next move?
1: I've spent the last five years on the academic job market. It's tight. (laughs) I feel very fortunate to have the job that I do at the American University in Cairo. I'm very grateful. I plan to stay there for the foreseeable future. I just renewed my contract last year. I'm hoping maybe to get on a tenure track position eventually, but I feel like the fact that I was able to renew my contract is a positive step. We've become a part of this community now in Cairo. I never thought I would say that. Growing up as a small town boy in Kansas, if you would have told me that someday I was going to be living in Cairo, I would have told you
0: you're crazy. How have you and your family adjusted to living outside of the U.S. for so many years?
1: It's been tough. Actually, it's been tougher in Egypt than it was in Senegal. It has not always been easy. Living in Cairo, though, has shown me how good we had it as a part of the official American community in Dakar. I had gone back to Senegal as a researcher. I was not rubbing shoulders with the country's political and military elites anymore. I was just another Western researcher. I stayed with a family in Senegal that kind of became my host family, and I'm still in touch with them. I got to see that life was very different when you're not a part of that official U.S. community. But in any case, I think because of all of that, I was actually kind of overconfident when moving to Cairo. I thought, hey, man, I've been to Senegal, and I've done this, been to Africa, been to the third world. I can handle this. But frankly, our first year in Cairo was tough, much tougher than I expected. Now that we've been there, heck, it's almost uh, four years now. It kind of feels like home. We have become part of an expat community in Cairo. I also have a number of Egyptian friends that have been very welcoming and have really made us feel at home there.
0: Mark, you're way over in Egypt, but you're likely have generated a number of additional questions from people out here who might be interested in moving on to higher education. By the way, it's been a hot topic on this side of the pond because the Naval Academy recently had a session about moving on to higher education or transitioning to higher education. And they talked about not only being a professor, but other roles that are in the university system that people can take advantage of. If you're a facilities manager, for example, or you are involved in operations, there are roles within higher education for that. So I think it's becoming a hot topic. People are talking about it. So I think your visit to the Guhe is timely in that regard. You're given one side of it in terms of being a professor, which I think is very interesting. So I do expect that people are going to reach out to you or want to reach out to you to hear more about what you're doing over in Egypt. What's the best way to reach you? How should shipmates reach out to contact you?
1: They can reach me on LinkedIn. My email is also available on the AUC History Department website. You shoot me an email, that's probably the quickest, most direct manner, but certainly LinkedIn would work as well.
0: I'm going to let you out on this one. We've been talking about we go way back. You're part of the Ohana. We've shared some good laughs and good times, but I know there's a lot of good stories in there. You decide where you want to pick them from. Tell me something I don't know. Tell me something about Mark Dietz that will teach me something new. Make me say, is that right?
1: Well, did you know that I have three African kids?
0: I did not know that. (laughs) Is that right?
1: That is right. At the end of my attache tour in Dakar, Senegal in 2007, my wife began to talk to me about adopting. We already had three biological children. And at first I just said, honey, you know what? That's great for other people, but that's just, that's not me. (laughs) Sounds really hard. (laughs) I had already been doing some thinking well. I don't think we called it white male privilege back then, but... I was aware that I was incredibly blessed. The family that I grew up in, I had a great set of parents who loved me and nurtured me and and raised me. I was aware of this, the stability of a home, that solid home stability, I think, that was so important. After seeing the poverty and the inequality and things like that, that I saw in West Africa, we went down this path of adopting three children from Ethiopia in 2007. At the time, they were ages seven, five, and two. Two boys and a girl, and they were a sibling group. The mother had died giving birth to the youngest one. Wow. They're Dietzes now.
0: They are (laughs) Dietz.
1: At the same time, we try to stay connected as much as possible to their culture. They know exactly where they came from. Living in Egypt has given us the opportunity to actually get in touch with their family in Ethiopia. Grateful for that opportunity and grateful to have those kids in our family.
0: Mark, that's an amazing story. Six kids.
1: Yeah, total six. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, you're going to be working for a long time. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> exactly. Hey, what good on you. Now, are the kids multilingual as well?
1: No, unfortunately. That's an interesting question because when they came home to America, by the way, this is when I was starting that tour. Uh, at the Naval Academy, 2007, they came home with us, and they did not speak a word of English. Over the course of about two months, I would say, they were speaking English. I mean, it was incredible how quickly it occurred. Originally, they were in ESL classes and things like that at school. Eventually, they worked their way out of that. If you met these kids, you would think they just grown up in America the whole time. You couldn't tell the difference.
0: Right. Well, I hope that they're able to speak their native language as well, maybe even some French.
1: They're trying to relearn it. Unfortunately, I think that what is a part of the adoption process, they lost their hope in coming to my family. They went through a lot of trauma. And then when they came to America, they were trying so hard to fit in and trying so hard to learn English that they let that Amharic, which was the language that they spoke in Ethiopia, they let that go. There's tons of Ethiopians in the greater Washington, D.C. area. If we'd go to eat at an Ethiopian restaurant or whatever, I'd try to get Ethiopians to come over and speak to them in Amharic. But our kids were just always so shy about that and they kind of refused to answer. Again, I think the reason is because they were trying so hard to fit in with our family and with American culture that it's really sad, but they hardly speak any Amharic now. Now that they're becoming young adults, I think that's something that they're going to want to recover.
0: Mark, we could talk about that for a whole episode, but I'm going to let you go. <laughs> You've been a fabulous guest. Thank you for coming on the Guhey. Always pleased to see you. It's been my privilege, Will. Thank you so much. I'm very impressed at what you're doing. So keep doing it, Mark, and looking forward to talking with you again soon. Sounds good. Alhamdulillah. Go Navy. Go 90. I want to give another big thank you to my guest today. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast, and more importantly, tell another shipmate to do likewise. The more shipmates are talking, the more opportunities we will create for each other. For show notes on today's episode, please go to thegoohay.com. Until next time, I'm William Jones. Keep chopping wood.